Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. The show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Well, we've got another great show this week. It starts off with a look at what to expect to see in the night sky during the month of October. This year, maybe our Halloween treats are going to be in the sky instead of in our Halloween bags. J. Scott Miller will tell you all about that. That'll be followed by a short clip from one of my favorite collections of political commentators. It's the folks from Slate's Political Gabfest. They recently presented a nice summation on the status of coronavirus science and COVID-19 response by the current Trump administration, and I wanted you to hear that. That'll be followed by a fitting look at what the rest of us can do to maintain our sanity in these emotional times. It's regular Bench Talk contributor Leslie Moise speaking on the science of emotions, and she'll end the show with a couple of poems specifically written on this topic. Anyway, let's get going. First up, J. Scott Miller on the night sky this month. Scott here. For a couple of years now, I've been attempting to show off the night sky at a time just a little after darkness has fallen. I get out at that time in the evening because there isn't much on television to distract me, and it is relaxing to reconnect with the night sky. October has arrived with hopefully cooler temperatures and with darker skies earlier in the evening than in summer months. As I step out on my front porch and allow my eyes to adjust to the dark, low on the northern horizon in front of me are the stars of the Big Dipper. Over the next few months, spotting the Big Dipper is a bit of a challenge. Stars that make it up are easily hidden from view by objects in its direction, such as nearby trees or houses. It takes a little effort to move about some in order to pick up the seven stars that make up the Dipper. Of course, once found, those stars can be put to work finding other objects in the night sky. Before getting too close to the northern horizon, the pointer stars that mark the front side of the Dipper's bowl can be used to find the North Star Polaris. Start with the bottom of those two stars and draw a line through and beyond the upper star the one that marks the lip of the dipper's bowl. Extend that line about five to six times the separation of the pointer stars. That leads to Polaris. Polaris has the distinction of not appearing to move throughout the night. All the other stars in the sky seem to move about it over the course of that night. In addition, over the course of a night or a year, it does not move closer or farther from the horizon, unlike the other stars. So Polaris offers two things to the casual observer, the direction north and the latitude of one's location if one measures the angle between the horizon up to Polaris. Polaris is also part of the group of stars, asterism in science speak, called the Little Dipper. It does in fact mark the end of the handle of the Little Dipper. In the early evening skies of October, one sees two more stars that finish the handle up and to the left of Polaris. 
If the skies are dark enough, no washout from city lights, beyond those three are four stars in the shape of a box that together with the handle finish the Little Dipper. Now that the direction north is established, it is time to swing around to the opposite direction and face south, because there are planets to be found in the southern sky. Two of them have been obvious for some time now, but a new addition is found over in the eastern skies after darkness falls. Located almost due south around 8.30 in the evening is the planet Jupiter. To its left is Saturn. Jupiter is the brighter of the two. These two have been trailing each other night after night across the southern skies. Neither is quite as bright as they were this past summer when we passed each in turn in our faster orbit around the sun. Still, they outshine many of the stars, making for an easy target for the eyes or even a good pair of binoculars or a small telescope if either is handy. But at present the brightest of the three planets now easily visible is found over in the eastern sky, the planet Mars. Mars is comparable in brightness to Jupiter because it is close to us. We will be overtaking it later this month. Opposition, that point when a planet outside our orbit is in the opposite direction from our vantage point, as the Sun, is on October 13th. Since Mars is near to us as we begin the process of overtaking and passing it, now would be the time to study it with a good-sized telescope to see if it is possible to see faint features on its disk. But the time to do this is somewhat fleeting. Mars is much smaller than Jupiter, so as we begin to put distance between us and Mars, you may notice a much more dramatic change in its brightness. Though it will be visible in the evening skies for the end of the year and beyond, that increase in distance coupled with the smaller size of Mars will cause its brightness to diminish quickly. An easy to follow long period observation to make of the red planet. There are two full moons this month. By the time this recording is heard, one of those will have already passed. On October 1st, the full moon known as the Harvest Moon was visible in our skies. Fast forward about 30 days and the Hunter's Moon will grace our skies on October 31st, hanging over the skies of Halloween. Finally, there are a couple of meteor showers that peak during the month of October. The Draconid shower peaks the night of October 7th. It is not a very productive shower, but you may see some streaks of light apparently coming out of the northern sky over the next few nights, if weather permits. The second of the two, and bit better known, is the Orionid meteor shower. It peaks overnight the evening of October 21st and early morning hours of October 22nd. Meteor showers are generally times that we pass through the path of a comet sweeping up debris along the orbit left behind by the comet on previous passages around the Sun. In the case of the Orionid meteor shower, the contributor of debris is Comet Halley, one of the most famous comets known. So, weather permitting, you may see remnants of that famous comet streaking across the sky on either side of the peak date. To be an Orionid, expect streaks to come out of the eastern sky until Orion itself rises then away from that constellation as the night passes. October skies, with its earlier darkness and crisper temperatures, beckons with lots to see, planets, meteors, and constellations aplenty. A good time to leave couch potato mode and enjoy the wonders of the night sky. That was J. Scott Miller, our resident astronomer and physicist. Now, 
COVID-19. One of my favorite podcasts is Political Gab Fest, put on by the daily magazine Slate. Political Gab Fest features three well-known journalists. It's David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson. It was just on September 24, 2020, that they provided the short review of how public health science, science policy, and scientists are getting battered by the White House during a pandemic that has now infected more than 7.5 million Americans and killed 210,000. First, you'll hear from David Plotz, then Emily Bazelon, and then John Dickerson. 200,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. That is the official number. The actual number is almost certainly closer to 300,000 people who have died when you look at the excess deaths in the United States during the course of the pandemic. The virus continues to rage across the country. Nearly 1,000 people are dying every day. So that's two 9-11s every week. And meanwhile, meanwhile, there is, of course, a vaccine hunt that is going on and moving very speedily, thank goodness. But in the Trump administration, there is an effort to sabotage its own scientists to make the CDC into a laughing stock. And it even turns out that one of the leading conservative media critics of Tony Fauci has, in fact, been a press officer and was until this week a press officer within Fauci's own institute. So, Emily, I don't even know where to start with this. I mean, we have a we have this absolute colossal national tragedy mismanaged by the president and the people who are in the best position to fix it, not necessarily who are, you know, the not necessarily they're perfect or that they will always get things right. People are in the best position to fix it at the CDC, the FDA, other parts of HHS are being actively undermined by top Trump officials. That's disturbing. Yeah, I mean, this is a um, scenario we've been worrying about for the last four years, the kind of degrading of the career professional ranks of the government, the people in the agencies who are data-driven, who do this work of trying to keep us safe, whether it's food safety at the FDA, a vaccine safety, understanding how the virus works. And to see that so undermined by politics, you know, for example, the CDC changed their guidelines on testing. They said people exposed to the virus don't necessarily need a test if they didn't have symptoms and weren't high risk. That caused a lot of alarm among public health experts because that's just not what um, they are recommending. It's full of errors. And then it was reported that this change didn't come from the CDC scientists and didn't go through the review process. It came from political appointees at the top of the Department of Health and Human Services and the White House Task Force. So the CDC had to reverse that recommendation. There was an advisory that went up this week about the virus spreading through aerosol teenier particles, that then came tumbling down. Now, it may be that there's a reason for that second withdrawal that is more neutral, but it at this point, the agency's trustworthiness is being so undermined, and it plays an important role in this country, but also internationally. I just find this really, really hard to grapple with, especially because There have been some wrong public health calls along the way anyway. Like, this agency was not fast enough to recommend masks. I mean, and it's hard to tell how much of that was informed by politics, honestly. I mean, one of the things that really haunted me this week was learning that the country came close to mailing out five free masks to every American 
back in March. Like, that would have made such a difference if that had been a universal message that could have saved so many lives. And so the idea that we're having this muddling, that scientists within the agency are despairing about political interference, like, it just could not be more unsettling. And it also is indicative of things that are happening in other agencies, too. You also have the president undermining the use of masks in real time, or at least not lending his his or to all of his public health officials who are trying to desperately get people to wear masks right now. I don't understand if you're obsessed with trying to restart the economy, why you wouldn't do what is the necessary precondition for getting people to stop being so risk averse, which is to basically force everyone to wear a mask constantly. It's the only way we're getting through the period between now and when there's widespread vaccination, which might not be until the middle of next year or the end of next year. And that's not just me. That's, you know, uh, Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. That's lots and lots of economists who say that until people stop worrying about their own risk, they're not going to engage in economic activity. And the fact that there would be this undermining of the officials who who are trying desperately to tell everybody, despite you know, some early mistakes, what like they're all supposed to do, even now this far into it, is just very vexing. Well, maybe they're not obsessed with restarting the economy in the way they should be. Is that is a possibility? I mean, the president is interested in the stock market. He's never been a person who actually has engaged in real estate is not really like the rest of the economy. I think it's kind of invisible to him. And I think also they've realized that it doesn't matter for re-election, that actually these health of the economy, people's partisan biases and the way that they people vote and act and behave is so deeply now connected to a sense of partisan identity for so many of the people who are likely to vote that actually it's not really important. And it and pushing people to a mask mandate, which would change which would be a like an impingement on freedom according to this this bogus, ridiculous sort of conservative ethos that Foxes and and OAN have pushed out, it doesn't make sense. It's a weird thing to say. Like, the president basically has decided the economy is less important than some kind of culture war victory. Yeah, uh, this is re- what the point you just made is really w- worth putting a underline underneath. That's why I wrote that piece about how the president has tweeted out seven, probably eight times more about the threat from mail-in ballots than he has anything about the dangers of COVID-19. You tell people to wear masks, you've just put your hands on the problem. You've just encouraged them to think you have some responsibility for it. Why make them do something that bums them out and hurts you politically? I want to talk, uh, Emily, about William Cruz, who's this press official at NIH who was, it turns out, had a secret anonymous identity or has a secret anonymous identity writing for Red State, which is a internet publication, which has been very critical of Tony Fauci. And so it turns out that while in his, while, you know, from nine to nine to five, uh, Cruz was helping put out uh, communications about public health and public safety at Fauci's agency, uh, probably also from nine to five, but also certainly from five to nine, he was anonymously savaging the scientists and government officials who are trying to control the pandemic and, and Fauci and accusing by name, them of being, like trashing yeah. him, right? It's yes. not like yeah. like sort of so, sober criticism. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so there's a deep state apparently, and the deep state, like the deep state, is this, is an anonymous, you know, red state bloggers who are undermining the very government they work for. Um, it is. It was. It's a very disturbing situation. Yeah, the trolls in the building, <laughs> the trolls in the house. I mean, it, I. 
there's so many weird things going on. The way in which, you know, these two political appointees, um, Scott Alexander and Michael Caputo, they've played these bit parts in the last week or so of just seeming totally partisan and not scientific in their thinking. You know, Caputo has now taken this, like, medical leave of absence after spreading bizarre conspiracy theories in, like, a live Facebook streaming. I mean, it, there's just weird stuff happening. It feels like the wheels are coming off inside the government. And in some ways, early on in the Trump administration, there were still enough people and and norms in place that we didn't see this as much. It's taken a while for the more extreme folks in the administration to really come into power. Yesterday, I saw that an aide to Devin Nunes, a very right-wing congressman with his own seriously partisan record, is going to be the new inspector general for the intelligence community, the intelligence agencies. You know, this is just another step along the way, and it shows what's at stake in a second Trump term as opposed to um, one term. That was David Plotz, Emily Bazelon, and John Dickerson from a portion of the September 24, 2020 podcast of Slate's Political Gab Fest. We'll provide a link to this show on our SoundCloud page and our Facebook page. And I think I have time to add just one more salacious detail to this list of science scandals. It's the recent New York Times article about the pressure that the White House placed on the CDC to downplay the risk that the coronavirus has on young people and to encourage the opening of schools. One former CDC official said that the White House was, quote, slicing and dicing our data to fit its narrative. Anyway, now Leslie Moise, noted local author, teacher, and poet. Today she is initiating a new series on Bench Talk about the science of everyday life. Today it's on the emotional context of dealing with the anxiety, isolation, and fear that we must all be experiencing during the coronavirus pandemic. She'll offer some advice and finish with a couple of poems roused by this disturbing topic. Leslie Moise. This is the first story in a series about the science of everyday life. The science of emotion. The sources I used for this story include The Psychological Impact of Quarantine, that was published in The Lancet 2020 by Samantha K. Brooks, Ph.D., and Gideon James Rubin, Ph.D. Next article I used was a study about sleep deprivation and its relationship to anger that was published in the American Academy of Sleep Medicine on August 28, 2020. I also used an article a study from Penn State in November 25th, 2019 about feeling loved in everyday life, as well as an article in the Journal of Positive Psychology by Matthew Kwan Johnson about joy, a review of the literature and suggestions for future directions. Now, the Lancet study about fear involved studies that were done in Taiwan, Australia, Canada, 
South Korea, Hong Kong, China, and Sweden. And the analysis of those studies found that quarantine has a number of psychological effects after the study of the compilation of 24 papers on the subject. The effects include facets of post-traumatic stress disorder, like feeling confused and experiencing rage. I personally, during self-isolation especially as it has progressed, have felt moments of anger, which are especially challenging to experience because I'm by myself, so I don't have anyone with me to be angry at, so I'm being angry at the events that are playing out in the world. I've also spoken with family members and friends, and everyone I've talked to about this has experienced the same thing. They talk about getting angry out of nowhere at least once or twice a day. The causes of this kind of stress include fear of becoming infected, fear of running out of necessary supplies, and there are a number of long-range effects. The concept of quarantine dates back to the Black Death in the Middle Ages. Being isolated from your family and friends, feeling isolated, experiencing this loss of freedom, and growing bored can lead to rage and even, in some extreme cases, suicide. The second study was about the relationship between anger and sleep deprivation. And this study interviewed 200 college students and found that the students who were sleep deprived were more likely to collapse into anger more easily than the students who got adequate sleep. And of course, during self-isolation and during this high-stress time, many of us are having difficulty sleeping. I've also talked to and experienced this personally. It's not uncommon for me to take two to four hours to fall asleep at night and then pop awake long before my alarm goes off and not be able to go back to sleep. So, what can we do about the feelings of anger, stress, fear, and isolation. Well, according to the article by Matthew Kwan Johnson in the Journal of Positive Psychology, Volume 15, Issue 1 in 2020, focusing on the negative increases negative feelings, but laughter, feelings of joy, helps lower stress. So what can we do? Well, we can listen to jokes. One of the things I've done is I've watched funny YouTube videos, videos that make me laugh out loud. We can also call each other and tell each other jokes. We can watch funny movies or TV shows. We can read funny books. I try to laugh from my belly at least once a day, and that often counteracts my feelings of anger. When I'm, I catch myself going into a moment of anger, scolding someone who's not present in the room, I will take a breath, make myself stop, and then watch a funny video or read a book I know is funny. Something else we can do that's even more helpful is to experience love. So 
the article about the importance of love is that felt love is not the same as romantic love. That if people reach out to each other four times a day at random times, not scheduled times, because scheduled times we start to experience them like they're not happening. But if they're random and we reach out to others and they reach out to us and just say, I love you, that that helps us feel better and feel loved and know we're loved. So reach out to your loved ones, even if it's in a text, and ask them to do the same for you. Pet your pet. And again, I have been watching YouTube videos that stir feelings of love. Joyous videos. Videos of parents with small children. I watch my nieces play in the backyard. So instead of sinking into negativity, take control of your own feelings. Or at least reach out to shift your feelings from the negative to the positive. And now I have a small poem about this. Connected. In this time of COVID-19, of self-isolation, yes, I pat my dog. I text friends. I talk with my sister, my nieces, friends, one at a time, outside, masked, six feet apart, minimum. I talk to the birds who visit my feeder like the morning dove that reappeared after an absence of months. Hi, darling. I'm relieved you're all right. And I watch YouTube videos of babies farting. Babies eating ice cream for the first time. My favorite? Her eyes pop wide. She grabs the scoop with both hands and dives in, mouth open. Refuses to let go or stop eating. I watch one of a toddler introduced to the rain by her father, holding her, hugging her close, while he runs out into the downpour, both of them laughing. I watch YouTube videos that make me laugh, until I ache from my gut to the base of my throat. The Swedish man who scared away a pursuing bear by yelling at it. The Australians, who drop everything from pumpkins to watermelons to bowling balls to cars and airplane, tree stumps, even an occasional yoga ball filled with food coloring, off a 45-foot gravity study tower, onto a giant axe, onto a specially designed, especially strong trampoline, onto bulletproof glass, all the while gleefully yelling, Go, you good thing. How good. I rewatch Andrea Bocelli's Easter concert from Italy. Especially Amazing Grace. And the other night, I dreamed my maternal grandfather, who died 30 years ago, walked up and hugged me a long, swaying time. Touch alone does not connect us. So does laughter, music, and love. Well, that's the show this week. 
Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. Choices. I can choose. I can choose to feel isolated from joy, from laughter, from my loved ones, friends. Or I can choose laughter, things that make me laugh. I can choose to feel the love in my heart. I'm in this room right now alone, but other people in the world are with me. Other people in the world are in the same position. I can know. I'm not alone. Thank you.